Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And for all of you who are online, we're so grateful that you're a part of this service today. Thank you for tuning in today, of worshiping the Lord with us. It means the world to us to know that you are a part of us. And for all of you that are on all of our campuses that are in person, yay God for you. Thank you for taking the effort. Thank you for being here and being a part of our services, whichever campus that you're on. Now, do y'all remember the big freeze that happened about 18 months ago. It was in February. Remember, it went down to single digits. No such thing as single digits in Houston, but it went all the way down to single digits and there was everything was freezing. Our pipes were freezing and the electricity went off. It was really a crazy two or three days that we went through. Well, it wasn't just in Houston. It was all over the state and in other states. And one of the cities that got hit the worst First was actually Austin because it didn't just drop into single digits in Austin. There was an ice storm, there was a snowstorm, all of it fell on that city and the area around. And so what happened was it just brought the whole city to a stop. The problem was a whole lot of people weren't at their house when everything came to a stop. Many of them slid off the road. They were in the ditches. They were stuck. Maybe some of them had, had uh, some, some accidents. It was a real, real mess. And you would think that in a moment like this where hundreds and hundreds of cars are stranded and people inside and what's going to happen, you would think that the tow trucks would be out. They'd be making a ton of money. Let me tell you, these people that were stranded weren't by any place that they could go for comfort. They could go for any provisions. They were stuck. And some of them were stuck all night long, all the next day, some of them for two days in their car, and they were scared to death that they would die. They would freeze to death right there in their car. So these tow trucks you would think would be coming to the rescue, but they didn't come. According to the news, what happened was is that many of these businesses were afraid. If we get out there, if we are pulling the, the car out, we may do damage to the car and get sued, or we may hurt someone, or heaven forbid, we may kill someone. We cannot take that liability. And so the tow truck stayed in their garage. And when this was said, when this became known in the city, all of a sudden, here comes Ryan Sively, S-I-V-L-E-Y. You can, you can read the story after the service, not right now, please, about Ryan Sively. Ryan Sively heard the tow trucks aren't coming and he decided he would come to the rescue. He has a, a four-wheel drive truck, big truck, and, and he has snow tires and snow chains and all that. He also has towing capability. He took off. He began to go from one car to the other, to the other, to the other, pulling them out of the ditches, pulling them to a sense of safety. Now, here's what you do. Stay in the middle of the road. You'll be fine. And some of those families, though, said to him, we're too afraid. We, we are so scared. We're going to be right back in the ditch again. You got to take us to our house. And he would take them to their home, unhitch them, and off he'd go again. Over the next three days, Ryan pulled out over 400 cars. 400 cars out of ditches and, and, and helped them to get back on the road. He helped over 500 people go to safety. 
And as if that wasn't enough, he heard that there were doctors and nurses who could not get from their house to the hospitals. He arranged with the hospitals. He went and got them, picked them up to their house, took them to the hospitals. After work, he took them back home. He was Superman. He was Superman. And he became known all over the city. He was a hero and he was interviewed by one of the news stations. And the news station said, Well, all these tow trucks, they're not going because they're afraid of the legal ramifications if something happened. Why aren't you afraid of that? And here's what he said. He said, what am I supposed to do? Just watch people freeze to death because I'm afraid of what might happen to me? No way. And then he went on to say, I feel like that I am an answer to prayers that people are praying in their cars And I've got to say yes to God. And you know what? He was right. He was an answer to the prayers. He was. And the rescue was amazing. But there is a greater rescue than all of those things in which God is the rescuer of all of mankind. And I want to talk to you about that very thing today. We're in a new series entitled Our Rescue. Last The last series was a four-part series in which we talked about who God is. Not who God is in the light of what other people think. You ask 100 people, you get 150 definitions about God. It was what God said about himself. And we looked in God's word, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We looked at what God says about himself. In the series, The God Who Loves Me. And now the follow-up to that series is this series, Our Rescue, because we saw who God is, and now we want to see what God has done and is doing in our life. Pastor Xavier began the series last week. I'm telling you, it's one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard on the topic that he addressed. The, The message was about what went wrong. That was the title of the message. He actually answered a lot more questions than that. He answered about who we are, who are we? Where'd we come from? What are we about? And then what went wrong? I'm telling you, the message was fantastic. It went so deep in our understanding. And look, if you didn't hear the message, you need to look it up online and listen. Now, the goal today is take the next step. What is God's solution to what went wrong with us? So I think in order to do that, I got to get a running start. I got to take a look at some of the things that Pastor Xavier walked us through so that we then can grab hold of the next answer. What's God's solution to what went wrong? And Pastor Xavier's made this kind of statement, humanity's problems began with sin. All of us were made in the image of God after his likeness. He wasn't talking about physically. He's talking about the characteristics of who we are. That was what was made in God's image. And in that being made in God's image, he gave to us a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with each other and with ourselves, and a perfect relationship with nature. We had all of that given to us in our creation. And in addition, he gave us a freedom of choice Maybe the greatest gift of all, the freedom of will. You see, if you you really love, you have to have the freedom not to love or else there is no freedom. 
It's not true love if you can, if you can choose, cannot choose to not love, then that love is not love. That is just pre-programming. God didn't make us robots. He didn't make us puppets. God gave us the freedom of will. The sovereign God within his sovereignty gave us the freedom to choose. And Satan took full advantage of that freedom in us. And Satan came to Adam and Eve and he, he began to tempt them. You see, God had said to them, you can eat of all the, all the fruit of all the trees. There are what, thousands of trees in their midst, but one tree, just one tree, you cannot eat of the fruit of this tree. So Satan came to Adam and Eve and he said to them, see how mean God is? See how restrictive God is? God's a killjoy. He knows that you are going to have a ton of fun with this fruit. He knows this fruit is going to be so wonderful, so great. He didn't want you to experience all the goodness. He just wants you to experience some of it. So he's too restrictive to you. You realize what your life could be without that restriction? God knows that this fruit is the best fruit. He knows that you will become just like him if you eat of this fruit. You know, when I read that story, I think of my teenage years. My parents, you are so restrictive of me. Now, there were all kinds of freedoms they gave to me, but there were some things they said, no, oh, I, that's exactly where I want to go. That is exactly what I want. What you tell me know about. You are a killjoy. You, you are, you're killing my freedom and my joy. Other people get to do this. Why can't I do this? And that's who I was as a teenager. And by the way, when I became an adult, that's who my teenagers were. By the way, that is what happens with every generation. What I discovered as a teenager when I grew up, that my parents were actually protecting me because they knew things that I didn't know. God was actually protecting us because there were things we did not understand. But with the freedom of will, they rebelled against God. And by the way, every single one of us have too. You can't blame this on Adam and Eve. Blame it on yourself. You and I have sinned as well. And what we've all discovered is that the wages of our sin is death. We see death everywhere we go. I don't mean the dying of a person's body. I mean the stench of death throughout our culture and the brokenness of our culture and the brokenness of people all around us. And just when we think it can't be more broken, we can't go any deeper in the sin of our life. We cannot mess up life any more than we do than we already have. Suddenly in our generation, we now see, oh no, we can go even deeper in messing up people's lives. And that is just exactly what is happening to little kids right now. Who, who knows how many of these little kids' lives are gonna be totally destroyed by the time we get finished with them in this generation? Because the wages of our sin his brokenness and death. But our God could see what was coming. He saw down through time. He saw where we would be. He even see, saw where we would be in this culture right now. And God, looking down through time, saw you. And he said, I choose you. I choose you. 
I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. I want you to be my children. And this is what the Bible is explaining in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, where he says, even before God made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God looked down through time and he saw you and he saw me and he said, I choose you. On what basis? No basis at all. Not on the basis of our goodness, not on the basis of anything about us. God chose us as the greatest truth, one of the greatest truths in all the Bible. And God said, I will make you holy in my eyes. How in the world could you and I ever be holy in God's eyes? Hang on to that question because I'm going to answer it in a few moments. Here is God. He has a solution for our brokenness. And God's solution began with a promise. What separates one of the many things, one of the many things that separates the Bible from the other so-called holy books is the prophecy that is in the Bible. There are thousands and thousands of prophecies, of verses that are prophetic about countries, about cities, about individuals, about the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Christ. It's absolutely amazing how much prophetic material is in the Bible. I've heard one person say that about 25% of the Bible is prophecy. And that prophecy is specific, detailed, clear, and foresees hundreds of years before it. How in the world could it do that? It is my understanding, as I've read of the people's writings, that there are many holy books that over time when they encountered the Bible said, well, that's, they've got all this prophecy. We need some prophecy in our holy books. And so the problem is they didn't know what was coming. And so the prophetic utterances I have been told of some holy books is so general. It doesn't say this, but it's something like this. On Tuesday in a hundred years, the sun will rise from the east and set in the west. This is profound. Oh, really? But in the Bible especially when you talk about the first coming of Christ, there are over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Prophecies like this, Jesus will be born in a tiny little town called Bethlehem. I mean, that pretty much eliminates, what, 99.99% of the population. And he will have an ancestor who is King David. That narrows it even more. And he, according to Daniel chapter nine, will be born during the time of the fourth kingdom of Daniel, which is the Roman empire. Ooh, that even narrows it further. And when he comes, he will do miracles. And when he comes, he will have a friend that will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Very specific. And he will die on a cross. Did you know that when David shared that prophecy in Psalm 22, David fully explained the whole crucifixion process, but crucifixions were not created as a form of death for 900 more years. And he will rise again from the grave, Isaiah 53, and all the meaning of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's absolutely phenomenal. 
There was a group of mathematicians who took just 48 of the 300 prophecies about the first coming of Christ. Hear me, 48, meaning only one six, meaning they totally ignored 250 of them and they only took 48 of the prophecies about the first coming of Christ to give a probability a mathematical solution of probability that one man could fulfill all 48 of the prophecy, just 48 of the 300. And they came to a conclusion that the probability that one man could accomplish these 48 different prophecies would be one to the 13th trillion, meaning a mathematical impossibility. And they didn't even talk about the last 250 of them. In other words, it's not possible that one man could fulfill these prophecies. And that is exactly what was in God's mind. That's exactly what God wanted to show. For he says in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, For I alone am God. I am God. And there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. You see, the reason that God would know all of these things that will come is because God is not locked into time. He's the one that created time. God is above time. He sees everything all at the same time. He knows everything that will happen, but also God has an ability to move in such a way that exactly what he wants to happen will happen. It's called sovereignty. So why is it that all these other holy books, they cannot either either have prophecy or they have to have such general, because how in the world do they know what is coming? Only God knows. And God demonstrates, if you want to know, who I am and what I'm about. These are the books. These are the writings that you read. All of this came together in Jesus. We're all part of the problem, but only Jesus is the solution. Jesus always existed. Listen to what he says in John chapter one, verse one and two about Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word was with God in the beginning. Now listen to how he puts it. You see the word is capitalized W-O-R-D. It's because it's talking about a person. The word is a person. And in the beginning, there he already was. There was no beginning for him. And this word was with God. And did you see that next part? And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then when you scroll down to verse 14 of the same passage of scripture and the same ideas he's describing this W-O-R-D, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Grace with a capital G, truth with a capital T. He's talking about a person, he even uses the word he. He is talking about Jesus. Who was it that took on flesh? Who was it that was the, the, the beloved of the Father? Who was this one? It's Jesus. Jesus had no beginning. Jesus is God who took on a body. This Jesus in heaven was also the creator. 
John 1 verse 3, and the word created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Listen to Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. Jesus made the things that we can see and the things we cannot see. There is now the concept in science that there is this mass that is the the majority of mass in the universe, but it's called dark, dark matter. There is this force in the universe. We cannot see it, we cannot understand it, but there is this force in the universe. Oh, we know what that force is. Jesus made things we can see and the things we cannot see. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. Everything has been created through Christ and for him. And when Jesus came, he taught us things about God we did not know, didn't understand. The reason that we call God our Father is because Jesus taught us to do that. The reason that we talk about having a personal relationship with with God is because Jesus taught us we could have that closeness with God. In fact, so much of what we know as Christ followers, we know only because of what Jesus opened our eyes and taught us about our God. Jesus taught us things about God that we never understood, we never knew. He opened our eyes about God and he did so many miracles, but his greatest purpose for coming was not to teach, not miracles. His greatest purpose for coming was to rescue us. And he sealed the solution. The solution was sealed when Jesus died and was resurrected. The apostle Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians that theologians and historians call the very first scriptures the very oldest of scriptures in its verse three and four of the passage that I'm about to read to you. I want to remind you, Paul says, of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you. He is saying what I have been told, I have understood about Jesus. Now I am passing on to you. It is the oldest part of scripture in the New Testament. And here's what it was. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Part of what Paul is saying is that everything he did is what the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, told us he would do. It was part of prophecy. He would come and he would live a perfect life. He would die on the cross and he would pay the price for our sins. He would be buried and he would rise again. All of that is in Scripture. But this statement in verse 3 and 4 is the oldest New Testament Scripture. He's saying, this is what I was taught and I'm passing this along to you. Jesus was crucified for our sin. Would you understand this for for just a moment? It, It is not the religious leaders that crucified Jesus. It's not the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. Jesus could have said one word and be and escaped their clutches. It was not them who nailed Jesus to the cross was you and me, our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. It was the only way of rescue for us. 
And that's why he would not call the legion of angels to protect him. He did not avoid the cross. He yielded himself to the cross because it was the only hope you and I had. And on that cross, there was a moment in time in which God took all the sins that had ever been sinned and all the sins that were being sinned and all the sins that would ever be sinned, meaning all your sins and all my sins. He took all the sins and he laid them on his son, Jesus, to the point that he became like sin. This one who had never sinned, all of our sins laid on him. And listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Christ who knew no sin, had no sin in his life, to be sin for us. And all of our sins were placed upon Jesus Christ, and he became with all the sins of all mankind of all time as though he were the personification of sin. And then the most amazing thing took place. It's an exchange. God took our sins and put them on Christ. And notice how the verse ends. He took Christ's righteousness and he put it in you. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How is it that God could see you and see you be holy in his eyes? It's not because he sees you. It's not because he sees what you have done and I have done. It's that he sees Jesus in us. The righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed inside of us. At the moment we accept Christ as our Savior, he takes all that sin out of us. He, it is placed on the cross and he puts within us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now when God sees you, he sees Jesus in you. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. And then in the book of, of Romans, it, it gives us the whole kind of logical progression. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, including you and me. For all have sinned and come short of God's glory. Romans 6.23, that the wages of our sin is death. The end result of our sin, the sin of all humanity has put us in the mess we're in. The death of this culture. The death all around us. In Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates. I want you to notice the present tense of that word, demonstrates. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It would make sense that this word demonstrates would be better off as far as the verse goes, demonstrated. God demonstrated it. He showed back there on the cross that he loves us. But that is not the tense of the verb. It is demonstrates because you and I need the demonstration every day in our life. There are times in which our life just starts falling in, all the problems pile up. Haven't you ever been in a time in your life that it seems like everything was coming against you? That no matter where you turn, you got hit again, you got hit again, you got hit again. And there are times in our life we wonder, oh God, are you still there? God, do you still love me? God, how could you allow this to happen if you loved me? Oh God, I can't take it anymore. 
And it's in that moment God says to us, oh, I continue to demonstrate to you every day that I love you because all you gotta do is go back to the cross and know that I died for you on that cross every day of your life. I remind you, I love you. I will never stop loving you. I have forgiven you. I will never stop forgiving you. I am with you. I will never stop being with you. And every day of our life, he demonstrates God is with me, God loves me, God cares for me. All you gotta do is go back to the cross. It is all the demonstration you need. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. It's called the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verse four, that he was buried and that he raised on the third day according to the scripture. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an actual historical moment in time. It's true. It's not figurative, it's not some hoax, and it's certainly not just some spiritual story that makes us feel good. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical reality. It is an event that happened. And at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he proved that everything he said about God, everything he said about himself, everything he said about you, and everything he said about salvation is absolutely true. How? Because the Romans knew how to kill somebody. They were professional executioners. They knew how to kill somebody. They knew when someone was dead and they killed Jesus and he was dead and they put him in a grave. But three days later, he came back to life. Three days later, he came back to life. And there's only one explanation for that. When the Roman soldiers killed you, they killed you. And when you come back to life after three days, there's only one person that can pull that off. That is God himself. And in that resurrection, God demonstrated that everything Jesus had said was true about God and about himself and us and salvation. Even the debaters, there's not many left, but even the debaters today over the validity of the resurrection Start the debate by giving this to the people that are pro-resurrection. He was dead. And the disciples believed with no doubt in their mind that he was risen again. Because there is no explanation of what they did after that resurrection. There's no explanation of their willingness, have the willingness to go to their death upholding the resurrection unless they believe with all their heart he was alive. Why did they believe that? They believed it because the Bible says at one time 500 people saw him alive. But these disciples saw him alive day after day after day after day for 40 days. It's one thing if you, if you think you saw Jesus, you think you saw him, but as time goes by, as decades go by, you could uh, you start, the doubts could start playing in your mind. Well, maybe it was just a mirage. Maybe it's why well, I just thought I saw him. Maybe, but when you see him every day for 40 days, that's no mirage. When you see him every day and you hear him teach and he goes back through the things he had taught you during his ministry, now in the context of the resurrection and suddenly my mind and my heart is open and suddenly I understand all that he intended to teach me. No, Jesus made sure that these disciples would never doubt again his resurrection by meeting with him, them for 40 straight days. And then they went out to change the world.
Jesus has now been exalted by God. He's ascended to heaven and exalted. And notice what Peter says about him in Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God. Philippians 2 verses 9 to 12 says it this way. Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. On earth, in heaven, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And what this means is this. That a day will come that every one of us, all that are listening to me in all of our campuses, online, every one of us will come face to face with Jesus Christ, every one of us. And all of our knees will bow and our tongue confess. And those who know Jesus Christ as Savior, when you see him, when you see him and you love him and you've given your heart to him, seeing Jesus Christ will be the greatest experience you've ever had to date. To see the one that you've sang about and you told others about and that you read about and that you prayed to and now you see him with your own eyes. Your knee will bow, your tongue will confess and it will be a wonderful time in front of Jesus Christ. But not only the believers in Christ will see him, every knee will bow. Those who cursed him, those who rejected him, those who mocked and ridiculed, those who follow him, all those who did everything they could do to turn hearts away from him, everyone will see him. And their knee will bow. And their tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it will not change their outcome one bit. So what do we do? What do we do with this this salvation, this solution of God? What do we do? How can a person be rescued? Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 to 40. Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says, first of all, you must repent and repent means to change your mind. I changed my mind from rejecting Jesus to receiving Jesus. I changed my mind from fighting against him. I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, to receiving him into my heart. And I yield myself to him. It's repentance that first happens. And when we repent, we don't just turn from something. We also turn to someone And we receive Jesus in our heart. We turn our heart by faith to Christ. Romans 10 verse 9 puts it this way. If you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth. I want you Jesus to be my Lord. And to believe in your heart means more than believe in your brain. It means you believe to the point of commitment. I believe to the point that I turn my heart to you. If you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you're saved. And once we give our heart to Christ, once we've turned our heart to him, we're to be baptized. Why? Because baptism is the outward symbol of what has now happened inside of us. 
There are some that are listening to my voice, maybe online on another campus or this or the Sugarland campus, and you are listening to me, and you say, I've already accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I've never been baptized. Oh, my soul, why? Why? Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism demonstrates that we are saved. Baptism is that identification with Jesus. Have you given your heart to Christ? Then follow through with baptism. I want others to see that I know Christ. I want my identification with Christ to be real and strong. I want others to to see it. We are to follow him in believer's baptism. And then notice what he says in the passage that God gives to us at that very moment, the very moment we give our heart to Christ, he gives to us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and he guides our life. Repent, believe, follow in baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit in our life. On May 26, 2013, there were three tugboats that were trying to escort an oil freighter off of the coast of Nigeria, escort that freighter in. But something happened, I I still don't know what, I've read the story, but they had not understood what had happened, but something happened, and one of those tugboats began to sink. And when that tugboat began to sink, those that were on deck, they just dove off and they were rescued, but there was one guy, 29-year-old Harrison, that was inside, he was the cook. And he was inside the cabin and all of a sudden he he felt something was happening and the boat was sinking, it was too late. He could not get out. And when it sunk, it went all the way to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and there was no escape. This guy knew the inside. All of a sudden everything went dark, all the electricity went out. He knew the inside of that cabin and he got a flashlight and he turned the flashlight on and now he was in water, the water was coming in with a torrent and and he was looking for air pockets and he kept going from one air pocket, he exhausted that, went to another and to another, but he found a huge air pocket. And then he got as many of the mattresses that were there, they would sleep in this tugboat and he, he piled up the mattresses, he got up on the mattress, the last mattress, so that he could sit and he have his head above, above the water and he could breathe and this air pocket that was still there. And there he sat. Harrison is a Christ follower. And he began, as you can imagine, crying out to God. And every verse that came to mind, he would say the verses, he would pray the Psalms, oh God, by your name save me. The Lord sustains my life. Every verse he could think of, he was calling that verse out to God. and Oh God, please rescue me. And he was there sitting on those mattresses for two days. Two days. When all of a sudden he heard a noise. The divers had arrived and they hit against the hull of that ship and he could hear it and he took a hammer and he hit from the other side and they were surprised and so they hit again and he hit again, they hit again and he hit again. And they came in and they rescued him and they brought him safely to shore. And he was interviewed by a newspaper there in Nigeria and Harrison said this the rest of my life is not enough 
to thank God for this wonderful salvation. We haven't been saved from the bottom of the Atlantic. We've been saved by something greater. We've been saved from our sin and the destruction that is all around us. And he has saved us and he has said, I want you to come to know me and I'll let you, I'll guide you, I'll lead you to your best life ever if you will obey me. And there are times in which you think I'm restricting you. No, I'm rescuing you. I know what's up ahead. And if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, this is what the whole idea of trust is. If you'll follow me, I'll rescue you for the rest of your life. And then when you die, because we all do, you will be escorted right into my presence and I will have saved you for all eternity. And we don't have enough time, enough years, enough opportunities to thank God enough for this great salvation that he has given to us. And I'm asking those of you online, I'm asking those that are in person on all of our campuses, this is the moment of salvation. This is the moment to say yes to God. He is alive. He has risen. He is exalted. And he's saying to you, I want to be your savior. And this morning, would you commit your heart by faith to me? And I'm asking you, please do this. There are some of you that are online and there, this is the moment. It is not by accident that you've tuned in today. This is the message God wants you to have. And I'm asking you today, right now, right now, wherever you are, indicate to that chat host, maybe by, I, there's a chance, there's a way to uplift your hand, whatever it is, I want Jesus as my Savior. I'm committing my heart by faith to Jesus Christ. On all of our campuses, there is a next step center. I'm urging you, would you come today and give your heart to Jesus Christ? And some of you have already accepted Christ, but have not followed in baptism. Come and be baptized as God has told us, as Jesus has ordered us to do in our identification with Jesus Christ. You can go to the Next Step Center and make that decision. Whatever God's leading your heart to do, let's pray. Father, move in hearts today to say yes to you, to give their heart and life to you by faith, to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, to follow him in believer's baptism. God, may many, may many today Make that decision for you because you are our only rescue. And today we say yes. Moving hearts today on all of our campuses and online, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.